Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and internationally. Today, Global Council practice lead Elizabeth Beale is joined by Member for European Parliament Seb Dance to discuss the circular economy. Great, so on circular economy, we hear the issue and we hear the term, but what does it mean? Do you mm. think that it's, how would you define it and do you think that it's anything new or is it something similar to resource efficiency? It's very similar to resource <laughs> efficiency, but I would say it's something not new uh, in terms of a concept, but it's certainly something new in terms of the levels of policy at which uh, it would uh, affect and the, and the necessary changes uh, in society and in the economy that, that would be needed to affect it. I mean, at its very simplest, it's a replication of what happens in nature. There is no waste in nature. Uh, when something grows and then dies, it goes back to the soil, is reused and becomes part of, uh, of the next uh, growth pattern. And of course, humans are the first species, if you like, to break that. We take resources, uh, we uh, use them, and then we throw them away, and they are effectively useless because they don't biodegrade. Uh, they don't uh, play any role in the ecosystem or the food chain or anything like that. So the circular economy is basically, and it's very broad, it's an attempt to replicate what happens in nature. Very good. And do you think that that understanding that there's been, what do you think has shifted, um, both in the EU but globally, I would say, mm. in terms of looking at it as more of an environmental issue, mm. to now what's helped drive consensus and pass legislation this year in so many places, but mm. principally in the EU. Mm. What do you think helped transition the concept from largely seen as an environmental one before mm. to now where people are seeing cyclical nature as being mm. also an economic issue? I, I think exactly that, money, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> effectively. Um, I mean, what, what you see in many areas of environmental policy is there is a proposal, it's usually at the vanguard of, of, of what people are prepared to accept, um, it spends many, many years being you know, a kind of periphery idea um, and then eventually uh, because of the uh, nature of uh, a fossil fuel intensive economy, uh, you end up losing money and investment over time uh, because obviously if you're not replacing assets, you're simply using them, it's costing money, it's becoming less and less profitable. Um, and, and those periphery ideas start to move into the mainstream. So that, that was the case with, with decarbonisation. Um, decoupling economic growth from carbon intensity was obviously the first step towards that. That is happening at, at a very rapid pace. And so the next step is decoupling waste use from economic growth. Uh, and that, that uh, cost incentive is now uh, coming in. Uh, and people are seeing the benefit not just in, in the reduction in cost of, of new raw materials, mm. but also in terms of the jobs that are available in that process of enacting a circular economy. So bit by bit, that money incentive increases, and of course the more people see that. I mean, it's not a cynical thing, I don't think. Well, it's slightly cynical maybe, <laughs> but you know, it's not just the altruistic thing. I think once you get the, uh, the, uh, the right thing for the uh, environment together with what's right for people's pockets mm -hmm. uh, and, and investments, then you know, you're know you onto a winner. And I think that's where the circular economy is heading. Yeah. 
And given talking about people's pockets and households, given mm. that this is on many levels a very local issue, mm. get right down into people's bins. Mm. Um, why do you think it's necessary to pass legislation like this at the EU level? Mm. Why do you think it's important to be looking at this from an EU level? It's all about scaling up. I mean, you you, you can obviously we can all do things on an individual level, and I, and I hope we all do. But I mean, if, let's be honest: if each of us sat here were to do and audit of our habits, I think we would find things that would shock even us. Um, and that's the reality of, of, of modern life. There are so many conveniences and they have improved our quality of life immeasurably, but some of these conveniences come at a cost. Uh, and I think it's imperative, therefore, that we have legislation in place to make it easier for consumers, mm. if nothing else. Uh, and that has to be scaled up. So there's no point, you know, Luxembourg doing something brilliant, uh, but France not doing something brilliant. You know, we all have to do this together. Mm. Uh, and actually, of course, the nature of these things now is when it comes to the use uh, and sourcing of raw materials, when it comes to the um, uh, disposal of waste, uh, all of these things cross borders anyway now. Mm. Uh, and so when it comes to getting that expertise, when it comes to learning from best practice, and when it comes to getting the technology necessary to reuse uh, and recycle, it has to be done cross-border, and that's why EU action is so important. Yeah, and thinking about the various aspects of the circular economy, there has been some criticism that the focus has been too much on recycling, mm -hmm. and looking at that one element and how you deal with waste, mm -hmm. rather than looking at some of the more upstream issues mm -hmm. and eco-design. And stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you see that 2019 might be a year of focusing a bit more on some of these issues around bioeconomy or chemicals mm. or fashion mm. or ways to look at more of the, the upstream side? I certainly hope so. I mean, <clears throat> the, the focus on waste and recycling is obvious. It, it, well, it's obvious now. Perhaps it wasn't at the beginning, but it's obvious now um, because obviously it, it affects how we act as individuals, how we deal with, with the waste that we, we produce. Um, but yet, yeah, it's not enough. The upstream issues have always been a big problem in terms of public consciousness. The famous one is vacuum cleaners uh, and the, um, the new energy requirements on vacuum cleaners, which, you know, in the British press, if you, if you kind of believe what some of the papers were reading, you know, basically vacuum cleaners were going to become useless. We wouldn't be able to clean anything because of these wretched European directives. The reality, of course, is that what has happened is vacuum design was forced to adapt uh, to ensure that we have the same quality of cleaning products at much lower energy consumption. It works, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> legislation works like that. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I think 2019, I, I certainly hope so. We know that there are proposals in the offing uh, when it comes to uh, eco-design, when it comes to the so-called right to repair. Mm. So um, when it comes um, down to consumer products, at the moment, if something goes wrong, in most cases, you throw it out and buy a new one. That's a huge waste. Mm. Uh, and new laws should be coming in, uh, or should certainly be proposed by the Commission shortly, uh, which would uh, give people the so-called right to repair, i.e. we have an inbuilt requirement for manufacturers to ensure that things are repairable. Mm. Uh, and it sounds kind of basic, but when you think about something like a washing machine, yes, technology has improved massively in the last you know, 20, 30 years, but actually the essentials of it are pretty much the same. It's a motor, <laughs> it drives a drum. Mm. Uh, you know, yes, of course, computerization means that the control panels and all the rest of it have evolved, but really when it comes to replacing parts, a lot of this stuff is quite basic. And instead of throwing it out, we should give people the opportunity to actually 
have the uh, stuff repaired, it would be better for the environment and of course it would be cheaper for consumers as well. Definitely, getting back into the people's pockets again. <laughs> and so what do you think the lessons are? A lot of people want to say, oh, this is you know, circular economy and action on plastics represents um, a shift in terms of environmental movement and mm-hmm. now a lot of more things will be possible in terms of action on climate change mm-hmm. or other areas. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this is a, a one-off? Do you think that there's something particular on the circular economy that made convergence possible? Mm. Or do you think there's broader lessons for the sustainability agenda overall? I think, well, the broader lesson is that when you take action on one aspect of environmental policy, uh, it makes sense both from an efficiency point of view but also from an efficacy point of view to, to take action on other areas as well. I mean, the, the, the example I've always used is climate change and air quality. Mm. If you take action on air quality, you also end up taking action on climate change, on reducing emissions, on reducing carbon emissions and so on. The same is true of waste uh, and energy efficiency. You are taking corresponding action on, redu- on reducing carbon as well. They go, t- they go in tandem. And I think this idea that actually we would evolve from a society that has a linear model, pluck something out of the ground, many things out of the ground, burn a lot of energy creating something from those things plucked into the ground, use it for a relatively short period, then chuck it back into the ground where it lies for hundreds of years, Um, to be replaced by something that is much, much more organic, I think is a natural step in the evolution of human ingenuity, if nothing else. I think we are... You know, I've always been an optimist about these things. There is a huge crisis. Climate change is not just a theory. It's happening now, and it's happening much faster than anybody previously thought. The action we need to take is huge, and the, the vast quantity of money that is required, I don't think people are remotely prepared, mm. uh, and I don't think our politics, incidentally, is remotely prepared. However, I am an optimist, and I think that very strongly, we don't have to regress our quality of life. We don't have to go back to a period where you know, we, we don't have technology, where we can't travel and meet people around the world and, 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 and enjoy all of the things that we can today but we will have to do it in a way that doesn't degrade the planet. And I think we'll get there, because I think we're an incredibly ingenious uh, in, um, uh, species that can, can adapt very quickly if we have to. The key challenge we have now is, is getting governments, in particular, to recognise the scale of the challenge and the urgency of the challenge. And I think if they do, and I think if we get our politics in the right place, we can do incredible things in the next 25 years, because the alternative, quite frankly, is unthinkable. Mm. On that optimistic note, (laughs) I would join you. I'm also an optimist. And I think you're right that it just takes legislating in terms of creating that space for innovation Mm -hmm. and then to see what, you know, what can come from there. Mm -hmm. So I want to thank you for joining us today to talk about circular economy. We'll wrap up there. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.co.uk and subscribe to our mailing list. You can also follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.